0: DC Public Library podcast is made possible in part by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and is a production of the Labs at DC Public Library.
1: DC Public Library podcast, recorded from the Labs recording studio in the historic, modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, D.C. This episode is part of the DC Public Library Presents series, where we present special programming, authors and scholars, or celebrate library observances. I'm your host, Maggie Gilmore. I'm an Adult Services Librarian at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library and I'm joined today by Librarian Turner Freeman, also with Adult Services at MLK, and a company of voices made up by other DC Public Library staff and community members.
2: Welcome to our reading of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from a Birmingham Jail. In April 1963, Dr. King was jailed in Birmingham, Alabama after he defied a court order by leading a protest without a permit the protest, advocating a community-wide Easter boycott of white owned stores, prompted a response written by eight moderate white clergymen opposed to the movement. When King saw the statement published in the Birmingham News, he immediately drafted a response, first writing in the margins of the newspaper, continuing on scraps of paper gifted by black trustees and finished on legal pads provided by his attorneys. This is that letter. Originally published as a letter to the editor, It has since been published in many forms in a variety of publications and has even been used in part as congressional testimony. The letter has also been performed annually in the Great Hall of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library. Today, we revive that tradition, blending voices familiar and new. Here are our voices. We are. Philip
3: Bond.
4: Natalia Addison.
3: Derek Gray.
1: Deborah McKinney.
5: Me, Nguyen. Mia Alsop. Maggie Gilmore. Kelly Elaine Navies. Joe Stallworth. Emily Menchel. Maria Jones.
2: And I am Turner Freeman. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day. And I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I am here in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by The View, which argues against outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every Southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliated organizations across the South. And one of them is the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Frequently, we share staff, educational and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, the affiliate here in Birmingham asked us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promise. So I, along with several members of my staff, am here because I was invited here. I am here because I have organizational ties here. But more basically, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of 8th century BC left their villages and carried their, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the apostle Paul left his village in Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds
3: you deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham. but your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I'm sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustice exists, negotiation, self-purification, and the direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city's fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Then last September came the opportunity to talk with leaders of Birmingham's economic community. In the course of the negotiations, certain promises were made by the merchants, for example, to remove the stores humiliating racial signs. On the basis of these promises, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to a moratorium on all demonstrations. As the weeks and months went by, we realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. A few signs briefly removed, returned, the others remained. As in so many past experiences, our hopes have been blasted and the shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and the national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence and we repeatedly asked ourselves Are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? We decided to schedule our direct action program for the Easter season, realizing that except for Christmas, this is the main shopping period of the year. Knowing that a strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of direct action, we felt that this would be the best time to bring pressure to bear on the merchants for the needed change. And then it occurred to us that the March election for Birmingham's mayor was ahead. And so we speedily decided to postpone action until after Election Day. When we discovered that Mr. Connor, the Commissioner of Public Safety, Eugene Bull Connor, was in the runoff, we decided again to postpone action so that the demonstration could not be used to cloud the issues. Like many others, we waited to see Mr. Connor defeated and to this end, we endured postponement after postponement. Having aided in this community need, we felt that our direct action program could be delayed no longer.
4: You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? you are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent register may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive, nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies files to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis packed that it will inevitably lead open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. One of the basic points in your statement is that the action that I and my associates have taken in Birmingham is untimely. Some have asked, why didn't you give the new city administration time to act? The only answer that I can give to this query is that the new Birmingham administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it will act. We are sadly mistaken if we feel that the election of Albert Boutwell as mayor will bring the millennium to Birmingham. While Mr. Boutwell is a much more gentle person than Mr. Connor, they are both segregationists dedicated to the maintenance of the status quo. I have hoped that Mr. Boutwell will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation, but he will not see this without pressure from devotees of civil rights. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is a historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied.
6: We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs, lynch your mothers and fathers at will, and drown your sisters and brothers in whim, When you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters. When you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering, as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile, because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by sagging, by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title of Mrs. when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly a tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. And you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobody then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sir, as you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws just and unjust. I would be the first advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust.
7: All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. Segregation, to use the terminology of the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, substitutes an I-it relationship for an I-thou relationship. and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. Hence segregation is not only politically, economically and sociologically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Is not segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation his awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness. Thus it is that I I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court for it is morally right. And I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances for they are morally wrong. Let us consider a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. An unjust law is a code that a numerical or power majority group compels a minority group to obey But does not make binding on itself. This is difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that it is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. Let me give another example, another explanation. A law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that as a result of being denied the right to vote had no part in enacting or devising the law. Who can say that the legislature of Alabama, which set up that state segregation laws, was democratically elected? Throughout Alabama, all sorts of devious methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. And there are some counties in which, even though Negroes constitute a majority of the population, not a single Negro is registered. Can any law enacted under such circumstances be considered democratically structured? Sometimes a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I have been arrested on a charge of parading without a permit. Now there is nothing wrong in having an ordinance which requires a permit for parade, but such an ordinance becomes unjust when it is used to maintain segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and protest. I hope you are able to see the distinction I'm trying to point out in no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law, as would the rabid segregationist. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts a penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evident sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience.
0: We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight to a substantive and positive peace, in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tensions that are already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. Like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be opened with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed with all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. In your statement, you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But is that a logical assertion? Isn't this like condemning a robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't this like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical inquiries precipitated the act? by the misguided populace in which they made him drink hemlock? Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? We must come to see that as the federal courts have consistently affirmed, it is wrong to urge an individual to cease his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the quest may precipitate violence. Society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the
8: myth concerning time in relation to the struggle for freedom. I've just received a letter from a white brother in Texas. He writes, all Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually. But it is possible that you are in too great a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth. Such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively more and more I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be coworkers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative Psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. I began thinking about the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency made up in part of Negroes who as a result of long years of oppression are so drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodyness that they have adjusted to segregation and in part of a few middle-class Negroes who, because of a degree of academic and economic security, and because in some ways they profit by segregation, have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred, and it comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up across the nation. The largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim Movement nourished by the Negro's frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. This movement is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. I've tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need emulate neither the do nothingisms of the complacent nor the hatred and despair of the black nationalist, for there is a the more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I am grateful to God that through the influence of the Negro church, the way of nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle. If this philosophy had not emerged by now, many streets of the South would, I am convinced, be flowing with blood. And I am further convinced that if our white brothers dismiss as rabble-rousers and outside agitators, those of us who employ nonviolent direct action, and if they refuse to support our nonviolent efforts, Millions of Negroes will, out of frustration and despair, seek solace and security in Black nationalist ideologies, a development that would inevitably lead to a frightening racial nightmare.
1: Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests itself, and that is what has happened to the American Negro. Something within has reminded him of his birthright of freedom and something without has reminded him that it can be gained. Consciously or unconsciously, he has been caught up by the zeitgeist and with his black brothers of Africa and his brown and yellow brothers of Asia, South America and the Caribbean, the United States Negro is moving with a sense of great urgency toward the promised land of racial justice If one recognizes this vital urge that has engulfed the Negro community, one should readily understand why public demonstrations are taking place. The Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations, and he must release them. So let him march. Let him make prayer pilgrimages to the city hall. Let him go on freedom rides and try to understand why he must do so. If his repressed emotions are not released in nonviolent ways, they will seek expression through violence. This is not a threat, but a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have tried to say that this is normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. And now this approach is being termed extremist. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for racial justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise, so help me, God. And John Bunyan. I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. I had hoped that the white moderate would see this need. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that few members of the oppressor race can understand the deep groans and passionate yearnings of the oppressed race. And still fewer have the vision to see that that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent and determined action. I am thankful, however, that some of our white brothers in the South have grasped the meaning of this social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still all too few in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some, such as Ralph McGill, Lillian Smith, Harry Golden, James McBride Dabbs, Anne Braden, and Sarah Patton Boyle, have written about our struggle
5: in eloquent and prophetic terms. Others have marched with us down nameless streets of the South. They have languished in filthy, roach-infested jails, suffering the abuse and brutality of policemen who view them as dirty nigger lovers. Unlike so many of their moderate brothers and sisters, they have recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action antidotes to combat the disease of segregation. Let me take note of my other major disappointment. I have been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. Of course, there are some notable exceptions. I am not unmindful of the fact that each of you has taken some significant stands on this issue. I commend you, Reverend Stallings, for your Christian stand on this past Sunday and welcoming Negroes to your worship service on a non-segregated basis. I commend the Catholic leaders of this state for integrating Spring Hill College several years ago. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest and, and bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious and courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. I have heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with the desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mild pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern and I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular.
9: I have traveled the length and the breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states on sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I've looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I've beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over, I've found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with the words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? Yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformist. There was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not near, merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, it was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated." By their effort and example, they brought an end to such evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust.
10: Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church, as a true ecclesia in the hope of the world. But again, I'm thankful to God that some noble souls from the ranks of organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzing chains of conformity and joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. They have left their secure congregations and walked the streets of Albany, Georgia with us. They have gone down the highways of the south on torturous rides for freedom. Yes, they have gone to jail with us. Some of us have been dismissed from their churches, have lost the support of their bishops and fellow ministers, but they have acted in the faith that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with American destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson etched the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence across the pages of history, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored in this country without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters while suffering gross injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continue to thrive and develop if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery cannot stop us, the opposition we now face will certainly surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. Before closing, I feel impelled to mention one other point in your statement that has troubled me profoundly. You wordly commend the Birmingham police force for keeping order and preventing violence. I doubt that you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its dogs sinking their teeth into unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I doubt you would be so quickly to commend the policemen if you were to observe their ugly, inhumane treatment of Negroes here in the city jail. If you were to watch them push and curse old Negro women and young Negro girls, if you were to see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys. If you were to observe them, as they did on two occasions, refuse to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together. I cannot join you in your praise of the Birmingham Police Department. It is true that the police have exercised a degree of discipline in handling demonstrators. In this sense, they have conducted themselves rather nonviolently in public. But for what purpose? To preserve the evil system of segregation. Over the past few years, I've consistently preached that nonviolent. Nonviolence demands that the means we use must be pure as the ends we seek.
11: I have tried to make clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. But now I must affirm that it is just as wrong or perhaps even more so to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. Perhaps Mr. Connor and his policemen have been rather nonviolent in public as was Chief Pritchard in Albany, Georgia. But they have, been, they have used the moral means of nonviolence to maintain the immoral end of racial injustice. As T.S. Eliot has said, the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. I wish you had commended the Negro sit-iners and demonstrators of Birmingham for their sublime courage, their willingness to suffer and their amazing discipline in the midst of great provocation. One day, the South will recognize its real heroes. They will be the James Merediths with a noble sense of purpose that enables them to face jeering and hostile mobs and with the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of the pioneer. They will be old, oppressed, battered Negro women symbolized in a 72 year old woman in Montgomery, Alabama who rose up with a sense of dignity and with her people decided not to ride segregated buses and who responded with ungrammatical profundity to one who inquired about her weariness. My feet is tired, but my soul is at rest. <laughs> they will be young high school and college students, the young ministers of the gospel, and a host of their elders courageously and nonviolently sitting in at lunch counters and willingly going to jail for conscience sake. One day, the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in their formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Never before have I written so long a letter I'm afraid it's much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters? Think long thoughts and pray long prayers. If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth, and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr.
2: This ends our reading of Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Thanks for joining us.
1: To follow up, we are going to have a discussion to bring the words of the past into the present. There is so much meaning in that letter. Why do we feel it was important to share these words today?
2: On a simple way, a simple level for me, if you're going to celebrate King, what better way than to use his own words and part of the celebration? So that's always a good way to start it off every year for the DC Library.
5: Yeah, that makes
1: sense. Yeah, as we get into MLK week, we are celebrating January 18th through the 22nd, and we'll have some great virtual programming that you can find on dclibrary.org.
7: This is Deborah. Um, I also think that um, his words, even though they um, were, were written so long ago, it, it's like he's speaking about these current times. And I think that um, his words hold a mirror to, to our society. So um, I think it, it's just a great reminder of how much more work we have to go as a country.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: Well, this
2: is Turner again, <laughs> and speaking <laughs> for, I'm speaking for today, is look at the drama this past week. And that's the exact not worse kind of drama that he dealt with in his time, and speaking for the same kind of justice it's incredible that sixty years later it still holds true. I wish I could say oh we don't need his words it's just beautiful to hear, but we need him as much now as ever
0: mm-hmm. This is Mimi, and I think well, well said Connor and Deborah um, I- I'd like to share just why I I think it's important to read and and consider his words. Because um, it has a really, what I think of as a wonderfully radical prescription um, to combat these issues. And it's the one of nonviolent protest um, as a means to enact social change. Um, And I think that the artistry and the courageousness the profundity and, and the conviction that uh, you feel and you know internalize when you read Dr. King's words, um, and how he presents his his actions um, in spite of the brutality that he not only witnessed but experienced due to the color of his skin. I mean, it's just in- incredible and really awe inspiring. Um, and I think that his his message and his observations. Um, continue to be timely and important today.
9: Yeah, this is Joe. I also wanna speak to the forging of the document itself. Uh, The fact that he knew that even though he was in jail and wasn't able to sit comfortably at a desk or a typewriter or to dictate something to a secretary, he knew it had to be answered right away. And he just started writing. He started writing on anything he could get his hands on. He started writing in the margins of the very newspaper that published that statement from those ministers. And the fact that he could bring all of his knowledge, all of his skill uh, is just astounding to me. And you can hear that and you can feel that. Uh, He is really educating them. He is letting them know where he stands politically. He is letting them know that if they say that they are men of God, then here is the biblical prescription. And why are they not following that? Um, I just felt that there's so much uh, turmoil outside of me and inside of me that by working on this and reading his words, it just cleansed me. It gave me a strength and a hope um, that I, it, I needed to hear. So that's why um, it, that that's important to me right
3: now.
5: Yes, this <laughs> is this is Kelly. And, and I'll just add, you know, Turner mentioned the events of this past week. And it's interesting to contrast the violent domestic terrorism that we witnessed um, with his measured and thoughtful explanation for nonviolent Um, civil disobedience and what that means and how you're supposed to enact that. And it's really an interesting juxtaposition. I don't think this letter, even if we ever were to achieve racial justice, I don't think this letter will ever um, go out of style because there will always be some form of injustice. There will always be people asking the question, Mm -hmm. what is the difference between an unjust and a just law? And how do we push this this the progress of humankind forward? So it as, as, as has been said, it, it really never goes out of style because it has such richness and depth and addresses so many questions that we're continually confronted with.
11: And I'll just, you guys have all basically said what I feel too. Um, I just wanna know, like, I guess King, it's just a continuum, this, this, we, we are in the continuum of what he was writing in this moment. And we could throw out, you know, and just say, okay, that group that invaded the, um, the capital was like, you know, these just ignorant racists and blah, 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 and then just dismiss it. But that is not, and that, and that's what I think that King was touching on with Bull Connor and Pritchard and some of those races like that. But what are we going to do? Are we going to deal with the root of this thing and bring it out and really, really talk about it and really solve it? Or are we just going to dismiss them and be like, oh, that was just one group and um, you know, everything is all good now? Because it's not. It's it's really not. And there's just some fundamental underlying problems uh, to this whole racist capitalist system. And it's the same system that shuts those people who, I'm not making any excuse for them and their behavior, right? But they're ignorant and it's the same system that shuts them out. And they don't even know who's shutting them out. They think it's black people shutting them out, right? So. Right. I'm just I'm just curious are we going to use this moment as an opportunity as a nation to really really delve into it are we just going to do just like we did with George Floyd and all of that and just walk over it throw it out and keep it moving so that's my that's my question and I thank King for writing such a dope letter.
9: (laughs) I think you know the thing that I admire about King because I also follow the teachings of Malcolm X. Is that he clearly lays out in this letter these are tactics that the nonviolent mu- movement is not um, just about, oh, well, you know, I didn't want to get in a fight or whatever. This was a tactic that was chosen in what is essentially a war. It, it's very clear that that was going on. One thing that's not mentioned in the letter that we do know is that Birmingham was called Bombingham. That was the name for Birmingham. Mm -hmm. So much violence was going on. Mm -hmm. And violence was the biggest weapon. It was the, the, those who wanted to wield fear, used violence to keep blacks quiet, to keep them down. They use violence to teach people a lesson. And I think if we, you know, speaking to what Maria raised If we look into King's uh, toolbox, you know, Mm -hmm. come out with ways to educate ourselves as well as to educate others and to deal with others and respond to uh, the only thing they have going for them, which is violence. And I know it's a difficult, but um, I know that the lessons are in there. They're in this, Mm -hmm. and that's so important. His words are so important.
1: So a follow-up question to this discussion and considering our work in public service, how do you think your work today carries on the legacy of Dr. King?
9: You know, I've given that a lot of thought over the years, believe it or not. you know just working in this wonderful building uh, that bears his name. I remember that a few years ago prior to the renovation here I had occasion to walk through the entire library on some task that I had been assigned and I realized as I passed a film showing uh, free and open to the public on the lower level, came upstairs to see uh, people in the great hall milling about and to see people looking for fiction books in the popular library. Then going up to the second floor and there in the hallway was a grand ASL class going on, and there was some book club meeting going on in uh, one of the second floor reading rooms, knowing that the the college uh, service center was buzzing on the third floor. And I just realized that we were all doing the work for the community that uh, would have made Dr. King proud, especially in a building that, that bears his name. You know, uh, right now, at this point in Washington DC, we have such a wide uh, community of people and they all have needs and desires and I actually think that we are doing our best even in these times to try to meet uh, the needs of our varied public. And This is what I want to continue to do for the rest of my career in public service. And I know that it makes the community happy because they tell us so.
1: Thank you, Joe. And thank you, everyone who participated in this discussion following our reading. It is very important to contextualize the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And thank you to all of our participants in today's reading. Please join us for more programming, book discussions, and virtual chats for Martin Luther King Jr. week as we celebrate his birthday, January 18th through the 22nd. We also have Black History Month coming up in February, and the theme this year is Black Family. So we've got some great reading recommendations that our librarians are compiling, and we'll have virtual programming book discussions, check it all out online at dclibrary.org. It is also Winter Challenge, which this year we are partnering with the Washington Wizards, Alexandria Library, and the Prince George's County Memorial Library System. Um, through March 31st, so you can log in online at dclibrary.org slash winterchallenge. You have just listened to an episode of DC Public Library Presents on DC Public Library podcast, recorded from the Lab's Recording Studio in the historic, modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time.
0: you just tuned into DC Public Library Podcast, listen and subscribe at dcplpodcast.simplecast.com or wherever podcasts are available. Send us your comments at DCPL on Twitter or follow us at DC Public Library on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening.